With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Setlist, the music business podcast from CMU. This week, counting the impact of COVID on the UK music industry. Welcome to Setlist, the music business podcast from CMU. I'm Andy Malt. With me is Chris Cook. Hello, Chris. Hello there. As ever, we're going to be taking a look back at some of the biggest and most interesting music industry news stories of the last week. A week when the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK announced that it plans to launch a market study into music streaming. Yeah, that was one of the big announcements last week. That, of course is linked to the old economics of music streaming inquiry that took place in the UK Parliament earlier this year. One of the many, 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 many recommendations in the report published by Parliament's Culture Select Committee was that this competition regulator, the Competition Markets Authority, should investigate music streaming. And in particular, the major record companies and their role, well, I guess... The question is, does the dominance of the majors in both recordings and publishing, so the recording and song side of the music industry, is that having any impact on the way streaming works, the way streaming services are licensed, and I guess in particular on how streaming money gets split up between the recording rights and the song rights? That was really where the Parliamentary Committee were coming from when they said that the CMA should do this study. The government, in response to Parliament, then said, oh, well, it's not for us to tell the CMA what to do. And then they told the CMA what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they wrote to them and said, maybe you want to consider this. So, yeah, we've got this announcement. They are going to do this market study. Although, as yet, we don't know exactly what the CMA is going to be looking at in detail, whether it will be precisely what the Select Committee recommended, which was all about the dominance of the majors, or whether they'll go bigger than that. We don't know. So I guess the first step of their market study is defining what the hell their market study is going to involve. Yeah, that announcement was particularly welcomed by organisations that represent artists and songwriters, not least because this is something they've been pushing for to uh, to get kind of proper investigation into how the streaming market is structured in the UK and hopefully finding, or, and hopefully for them, I think we're supposed to be neutral and something, uh, hopefully finding that... Uh, Everything needs to be rejigged in the artist and songwriter's favour so that they all get more money. Yeah, and I guess in some ways this is particularly relevant on the songwriter side. I mean, both the Ivers Academy and the Musicians Union, I mean, as you mentioned, this was one of their big asks during the parliamentary inquiry. But on the songwriter side, it's very much about this idea of does the fact that the majors are so dominant in both recordings and songs, and yet they sort of have an interest, the major groups in more money flowing through their recording businesses than their song businesses because of the way the deals between publishers and songwriters and labels and artists are structured. Is that why the recording gets so much more of streaming money than the song? And that will be the on the songwriter side in particular, the hope that that will be very much at the centre of this study and maybe some changes will be proposed at the end of it. But it is really too early to say 
what even this study <laughs> is is going to be about and what it's going to focus on, let alone what conclusions the CMA will reach. And all of this will happen concurrently to separate work being led by the government's Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport and Intellectual Property Office, which is also digging a little bit more and commissioning some research about some of the proposals made during the Select Committee inquiry, some crossing over with what the CMA may well be investigating and some in other domains. That was a big development this week. There was also a development on what we talked about last week around the Copyright Royalty Board. So that's also about getting songwriters a bigger slice of the digital pie, but in the context of the US compulsory license. So I think last week we were talking about how the publishers want the next review of the song royalty paid in the US under the compulsory license to be increased. And we were expecting the streaming services to propose the opposite. We now know that. <laughs> yeah, they've gone the exact opposite way. Whereas the uh, songwriter groups were pushing for an increase to 20%, the streaming, well, Amazon and Spotify want to go down to 10.5%, which is quite a lot less and actually would be in line with what was being paid up to 2018. Yeah, although I suppose Spotify and Amazon never officially accepted the increases that were put in place under the US system between 2018 and 2022. And obviously the publishers are taking the 2022 rate and then asking for more, whereas yeah. Spotify and Amazon are taking the 2017 rate, having never accepted the increases from 2018 onwards and saying, let's stick with that. Yeah, I suppose if you have never accepted that increase, it does make it then difficult to say, yeah, we think 15% is fine when you've just spent five years saying, we don't think 15% is fine. Although I have to say, keeping it at 10.5%, when the going rate in nearly every other country where these things are negotiated on the open market rather than through some statutory process, I mean, 15% is becoming the rate elsewhere in the world. So trying to keep it at 10.5% in the US seems rather optimistic and it's going to result in a huge amount of Spotify and Amazon bashing in the months ahead, which they are already prepping for, I am sure, behind the scenes. But who knows, maybe the publishers are going for 20 and the streaming services are going for 10 in the hope that they end up at 15 fixed for 2023 to 2027. But you can read about all of these things in the CMU Daily and on the CMU website. I am sure Andy will put links in the show notes that seems like something I'd do. Even though, and we cannot stress this enough here on this edition of Setlist, that none of these developments are what we're here to talk about this week. No, this week is a bit of a stats special. And who doesn't love a stats special? Because later on, we are going to be discussing the dominance of free services in global music consumption, as revealed by the IFPI last week. But first... The COVID-19 pandemic wiped out 69,000 music industry jobs in the UK. That's about one in three roles within the sector, according to new stats from the trade group UK Music. Not only that, but the economic contribution made by the music industry to the UK economy slumped by 46%. So that means whereas there were 197,000 people working in the UK music industry in 2019, in 2020 that dropped to 128,000. And the economic impact, which was 5.8 billion in 2019, went to 3.1 billion in 2020, with the value of music exports dropping 23% from 2.9 billion to 2.3 
billion. Now, these are the figures that usually form UK music's big annual brag about how important music is to the UK economy and why ministers should do more to support the music industry and recognise that the music industry is such a big deal. I mean, it still does that this year, but it's more saying it's very important, but look what's happened. We really, really need your help to get back to where we were. So yes, in a way, it makes this annual stats report that UK Music puts out every year, what is now branded as This Is Music, it makes this year's particularly interesting. We all obviously know what a major impact the COVID pandemic has had on the music industry, and everybody working in the industry knows that firsthand, because even if you aren't working in part of the business that was hugely impacted, so say maybe you're more on the recorded music side, you almost certainly know promoters and agents and artists and songwriters who have been hugely hit by the pandemic. So we know that in informal terms. And there have been a handful of stats over the last 18 months that sort of hammer home just how significant it is. But then at the same time, because in the music industry, generally speaking, we get a huge amount of stats about recorded music and the record industry. The record industry is very generous with its stats, constantly putting out reports. <laughs> and indeed, we have one to talk about later on in this week's set list. But then when it comes to the other strands of the music industry, the publishing sector do put out some stats, although we haven't yet got the big global stats pack on the song side of the business from SISAC. It is due any day now, but we haven't got it as yet. Meanwhile, on the live side of the industry, traditionally, although there are various charts about box office takings, etc., the live sector doesn't tend to put out as much stats. And obviously, that is where the really significant damage caused by COVID occurred. So therefore, although in a way what this report is telling us, we kind of knew informally, it is interesting seeing some cold, hard statistics illustrating how for the industry at large, even though the record industry kind of has weathered the storm pretty well, because subscription streaming in particular turned out to be COVID proof, but for the industry at large, it has had a huge impact. And yeah, as you say, this figure that the music industry likes to use for its economic impact within the UK, what is technically known as the gross value added, which was that 5.8 billion figure. And the music industry always likes to wheel that figure out when it's looking for more government support. We're a really important part of the British economy. We're a big employer. We're good for exports, all of that. Obviously, the message this time is we no longer have as big an impact on the British economy because of COVID. However, we could do and we should do. So in the short term, you need to help us get back to where we were in 2019. And there's various things that government and politicians could be doing to ensure that happens. Let's get back to 2019 levels as quickly as possible. So then we can get back to growing the business and growing the economic impact and growing the export value every year. So as you say, still some bragging about how important the music industry is, but a very different report from UK Music this year, and therefore a very different and much more specific wish list, because these stats packs always come with a wish list, a different wish list at the end, very much focused on how the UK government and all the different executives and legislatures in the UK can help the music industry get back on track. 
as we come out of the COVID pandemic, even though we're not actually coming out of the COVID pandemic, but those are other depressing stats that we're not here to talk about this week. But let's assume that now so many people are vaccinated. We are in the revival period, even if there's still a few hurdles to cross over the winter months. And what can government be doing to ensure the music industry gets back to 5.8 billion GVA and beyond? Yes. So alongside this year's This Is Music report, UK Music has published a helpful music industry strategic recovery plan, which is just what ministers need to sort all this out. So the music industry's wish list in terms of government support includes tax incentives and a permanent reduction on VAT rates for live events, more funding and support for music exports, more funding for music education and the industry's community of freelancers, and urgent action to remove the barriers to European touring created by Brexit. Yeah, good luck with that last one. (laughs) Yes, we'll see about that. But uh, the, the main justification for the support is that the right interventions from government can return the industry to pre-pandemic levels and then achieve that £5.8 billion economic impact once again and even more. I mean, ministers do love to quote that figure, as we've discussed before. It's been a very successful report for UK Music, which is why it's become such a big part of their kind of public-facing activity, because you do see ministers quoting that figure back again and again in debates, on the news, in articles, you know, all over the place. So it's been really successful for them and it has helped kind of improve the view of the music industry to MPs or some MPs. Whether that's fed into kind of changes in laws, it's less easy to say, but it's certainly a report that ministers really do like to quote from. And I guess UK Music's trying to use the goodwill it's built up over the last few years of publishing this report to say, wouldn't you love to quote some big numbers again? Give us a hand. Yeah, help us get back to that 5.8 billion GVA, even if I suspect that most people in the music industry and most people in the political community don't really understand what the gross value added even means. But it has proven, as you say, to be a useful figure over the years. That said, given that the economic impact figure has come down, even if that's only on a temporary basis, This year's UK Music Report also included some other what you might call more soft figures rather than hard economic figures, which are also there to say, even if our economic impact hasn't been as important over the last year, A, that's not our fault and you need to help us get back to where we were in 2019. But B, even if our economic impact hasn't been as significant during COVID, we have still been having a really important impact when it comes to life in Britain and Britain's reputation and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, they published the results of a survey in an effort to prove that as part of this report, which found that 75% of the British public are proud of the UK music industry and its heritage. 59% believe music improves the UK's reputation overseas and 74% say music is important to their quality of life. Also, this study reckons that a million people took up playing a musical instrument during lockdown, which potentially means... Uh, well, there's going to be a lot of musical instruments on eBay soon, <laughs> or that we've, or that we've got a load of great musicians about to blow up, who are going to need the support of a strong music industry. 
I don't know, something like that. I always think when you see stats like that, it's like, I wonder what questions they ask to persuade 75% yeah. of respondents yes. to be proud to of say, the UK to... music industry. I mean, they should be proud of the UK music industry, but I wonder whether there was a little bit of leading the witness in, in the questioning there. Yes, I don't, I don't know that 75% of people would even know that you, the UK has a music industry. <laughs> they, I mean, obviously they know there's musicians, but uh, that seems like a very high figure. I'm sure it's correct. We shouldn't be bad-mouthing it. I'm sure these are entirely legitimate stats from an entirely legitimate survey. Indeed, there is no reason to question any of these figures. Let's move on. Uh, UK music boss Jamie Njuko Goodwin says, The past 18 months have been exceptionally challenging for the UK music industry, with billions wiped off the value of the sector. But we are determined to look to the future and focus on recovery. Music matters to us all, and in a year when we've seen just how important music is to all of our lives, it's more important than ever that we take the necessary steps to protect, strengthen and grow the industry. In our Music Industry Strategic Recovery Plan, we identify the policy interventions required and set out a clear action plan to get the industry back up on its feet. With the right support, the UK music industry can help drive the post-pandemic recovery – this is Music sets out the positive role the music industry can play in our country's future and the steps that need to be taken to achieve that. Music is a key national asset, part of our history and our heritage. More than that, it's part of our future, and we can't value it highly enough. Although being able to evaluate it at 5.8 billion would be a good start. Yes, but being able to evaluate it at 9 billion would be great too. That would be I even mean, let's better. just keep moving the number up. Let's just randomly 27 pick billion. A number out of 40 the billion. Hey, there's a new Adele album out. The sky is the limit, surely. <laughs> now, such is the way with the wild and wacky world of lobbying. I mean, at the end of the day, UK Music is first and foremost a lobbying organisation. This report is a lobbying tool. And the weird thing about the world of lobbying is that whenever you put out a report, which is basically implying that the government isn't doing enough and they need to pull up their socks and put in more effort. At the same time, you have to give a page of your report to somebody in government <laughs> to A, echo back all the stats <laughs> that you've just told the government as if they are their stats, and B, to say how much work the government is already doing, even though the rest of the report disputes that fact. Lobbying is weird, basically. And so in this report, obviously, the UK has a relatively new culture secretary in Nadine Dorries. And so she had her little moment to say, look at all the great stuff we did during the pandemic, like the Culture Recovery Fund and the event research programme, which I'm not sure in the end came to much, and the insurance scheme for events that came way too late and most promoters say is useless. So yeah, lots well, was done. They don't done. seem to be able to access it at all, do they? <laughs> Does it even exist? So basically, she's saying, we did all this stuff during the pandemic, but you're right, we're now focused on coming out of the pandemic because, of course, she's part of Boris Johnson's cabinet, so the pandemic's over. It's all fine. And therefore, they're going to look into all of this and support the music industry in albeit slightly ambiguous, undefined ways. So, uh, you know, that's good. Yeah, she did say in her quote that went alongside this, Now the priority is to ensure a strong recovery. The UK music industry is one of our country's great national assets, and I give my commitment that the government will continue to back it every step of the way. Which kind of sounds like we're going to carry on as we were, which we've already established isn't enough. So um, 
possibly the conclusion is nothing is going to happen but hopefully the music industry will survive anyway or i mean i'm sure it'll survive it will revive anyway and we we will see i guess we'll come back in a year when the next edition of the report comes out and we will see if we've got anywhere near that 5.8 billion figure again Sticking with stats on this edition of Setlist, the IFPI, the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry, published some global stats last week on music consumption around the world, or maybe engagement, you could call it. Either way, it showed that digital platforms account for the majority of global music consumption, although nearly two-thirds of that engagement is on free social and video platforms. And that despite the fact in 2020, premium streaming services, which account for just over a third of total digital consumption, brought in nearly three quarters of the record industry's streaming revenues. Yeah, so we mentioned that the record industry, the recorded music side of the business, is very generous when it comes to stats. They're constantly putting out reports with different stats in them. And the IFPI, which obviously brings together the global record industry, has two big reports that it publishes every year. One in the spring, which is all about revenue. And then this one in the autumn, which is all about consumption stats. Or, yeah, they were going with the word engagement this time. But I think that was because they decided to call the report Engaging with Music. And once they'd gone with the brand, <laughs> they had to stick <laughs> with it. But uh, this is the report, which is not looking at where we're making the money, but how are people consuming, interacting with, engaging with music. This one is based on surveys and research that IFPI commissions, which takes place in 21 countries around the world, and it includes all of the biggest recorded music markets. And it's basically talking to internet users and consumers and asking them, you know, where are you getting your music from? Are you seeing music here? Are you seeing music there? So interesting figures, although as you did in the introduction to this section, all the more interesting when you take the consumption stats which come out in the autumn and then you cross-reference them with the revenue stats that come out in the spring. Because I think for me, that was the most interesting thing, which you summarised at the start of this section, which is that, I mean, of course we know that digital accounts for the majority of music consumption today, but what does that mean? And under digital, we have premium streaming, we have free streaming, we have music on platforms like YouTube, by which I mean the main YouTube platform, not YouTube Music, which would come under premium streaming. Then you've got music on social media like Facebook and Twitter. And then, of course, you've got the thing that everyone has been endlessly talking about over the last few years in the music industry, which is the video sharing platforms, of which TikTok is by far the biggest. And the trend is that, although subscription streaming is important for consumption as well, the other platforms account for quite a lot more music consumption, twice as much, even though, as you say, if we go back to the spring figures and we look at revenue, financially speaking, it's the premium streaming services that are bringing in by far the majority of the money. So I guess there are two things you can take from that, which is either that the free streaming services and then the platforms like YouTube and Facebook, Instagram and TikTok simply aren't paying enough into the music industry for all of the music on their platforms. That could be one takeaway. Or the other takeaway is, well, maybe we have to concede in a way that the YouTubes and the Instagrams and the TikToks are as much about marketing as they are revenue 
And it's through the music consumption happening on those platforms that people are choosing our music rather than everybody else's music on Spotify and Apple and Amazon. And that's where we make our money. So do you allow them to have the promo value card to justify why, despite accounting for all that consumption, they contribute a lot less money into the music industry? Yeah, so globally, it's the premium streaming services, and obviously particularly Spotify Premium and Apple Music, that are the biggest revenue generators for the record industry. But they account for just 23% of overall music consumption. Then there's the free streaming services like Spotify's free tier, which account for 9%. But then you've got these other services. So video streaming services like obviously the main YouTube platform accounts for 22% of consumption, social media platforms 3% of consumption, and apps like TikTok, and obviously particularly TikTok, doing short-form videos account for 11% of consumption. And of course, we know that the TikTok-type platforms have become ever more important when it comes to music consumption over the last couple of years, but I guess figures like this really demonstrate that. I mean, bearing in mind that there's plenty of content on a platform like TikTok, which isn't music centric, but then there's a significant portion where the music is a key part of the video that people are watching. But I also want to throw in there that things like Instagram Reels, which is basically Instagram's TikTok competitor, and then YouTube Shorts, which is YouTube's TikTok competitor. Actually, those aren't being counted under the short form video apps category for the purposes of this research. And to be fair, when I checked on this with RFPI, they said, well, you know, bearing in mind that this is research based statistics. These aren't stats coming out of a spreadsheet based on what's going out there. This, this is research driven. And when you're talking to people about where they're seeing music, it gets quite complicated when you say, well, are you experiencing music on Instagram? Yes, I am. Okay, well, can you tell us whether or not that was in your main Instagram feed or was it in Instagram stories or was it in Instagram reels? Because we want to categorize it in different places. I can see why most people answering your survey are going to switch off at the point that you get into that nitty gritty Well, just not know. I mean, it's going to be a mix of all those, isn't it? And I don't think anyone's going to be able to say, oh, yes, well, 26% of what I saw was in my main feed and then the rest was split between <laughs> reels and IGTV and everything and stories. No, no one's going to be able to do that. But my point is that actually this 11% of music consumption on the short form video apps, actually it's probably slightly more than that because some of the consumption yeah. happening on the social media platforms like Instagram and some of the consumption happening on YouTube. I mean, obviously YouTube Shorts has only really properly started rolling out relatively recently, but it's becoming more and more important. And so as a result, there are some other bits of consumption happening which are not being categorized under the short form video app, which are actually, in essence, short form video apps. So I think these stats are interesting. Again, I guess, like the UK music stats earlier, we knew the trend already. There's no shocks here, but it is interesting to see attempts to quantify what we already knew. And it does feel to me that the other interesting thing about the TikTok type experience, whether it's happening on TikTok or Instagram or elsewhere, I do actually think this is the one digital use of music, which in a way is arguably replacing radio. And it might seem a bit weird to say that it's TikTok, a video service that is replacing radio rather than Spotify, an audio service. But bear with me. I think okay. the, re <laughs> the reason I think that, <laughs> and in a way, in consumption terms, 
almost the TikTok type platforms are pulling people away from radio more so than they necessarily are from, say, a Spotify type service. The reason is passive discovery. The reason why radio was always such a big deal as a marketing tool in the music industry was because it put new music and unfamiliar music into the ears of people who didn't know that they wanted it. And I think it's always a struggle, isn't it, for people who work in the music industry, because most people in the music industry are constantly searching out new music, because it's exciting searching out new music. That's what drives them. But we always have to remember that for most people, unfamiliar new music is actually a turnoff. They're not actively seeking new music. I mean, maybe subconsciously they are, but they're not actively. And so that's why radio was always brilliant as a marketing tool, because what mainstream radio stations do is they huck people in with familiar music and then they drop some new unfamiliar tracks in, but you don't really notice. And by the time you do notice, you've now heard that track 50 times, so it's no longer unfamiliar. And so that's why radio was the passive discovery medium, a phenomenally important marketing tool for the music industry. And it still is, except younger people don't listen to as much radio. And in many cases, they don't listen to any radio, really. And although you could say, well, aren't the Spotify playlists and the Apple playlists and the Amazon playlists, aren't they a bit like radio? And I guess on a level they are. But in a way, I would say a lot of Spotify's playlists, well, obviously, there are those playlists that have no new music, but the playlists which have new music are possibly too eclectic and have too little repetition for the average mainstream consumer. Obviously, for people in the music industry, that's why a Spotify playlist is much more attractive than turning into daytime FM radio, because daytime FM radio is hell because it's 25 songs on a loop. But for mainstream consumers, that's what they're looking for. My point is that TikTok, in essence, albeit in a different way, is passive music discovery, because you don't go into TikTok for the music. You're not navigating TikTok to listen to music. You're going in there for all the crazy, nonsense, creative, stupid stuff that's happening on the platform. But while you're doing that, you're constantly being exposed to albeit snippets of music, some of which is catalogued, some of which is new, some of which you know, some of which you don't. But I think, and this is why TikTok has become such a good marketing tool and therefore fits more on the radio side than the streaming side, because it's its ability to do passive discovery, that people go into that platform to see whatever it is that the creators and influencers are doing on TikTok today. But in doing so, they're exposed to a bunch of music that they may not have heard of before. And then they go and listen to that music on Spotify and Apple. And that's where the music industry gets its revenue. Do you know what? I think I've inadvertently given TikTok their ammunition for why they shouldn't pay the music industry more money. And that wasn't my intention. <laughs> well, another stat that came up in this was that 68% of time spent on short form video apps involves watching videos where the featured music is key to the experience. So music is a very important part of the use of those apps. And, you know, we, we know it's driving music discovery. We're constantly told, that, you know, th this thing got big because it was found on TikTok. I mean, look at Nathan Evans, the sea shanty guy. He started off doing sea shanties in TikTok. That became a thing in lockdown not just him, but other people doing sea shanties. And now he's signed to a major label. He's just released a, a new single and clearly has a career potentially off the back of that. But also there's all this stuff, you know, with all the, the challenges and the, the creative stuff you talked about where music it forms part of the video and is sort of snuck in in the background almost. And, and you know, isn't isn't what you go there for, but it's a big part of what's there when you when you do go in there. Yeah, so it's the balance of... Without the music, the videos wouldn't work. So therefore, music is being undervalued. TikTok should pay more. 
Flip side is... <laughs> you swung it back round. <laughs> TikTok have found a digital way to do passive discovery, which we hadn't really found before. And therefore, for those younger consumers who aren't been listening to the radio, it's really important. Although talking of radio, I suppose we should talk about the music consumption occurring on non-digital platforms, which are also included in this RFPR report. Well, yes, because uh, people who were totting up those figures in their heads, as I read them out earlier, which I assume is everyone, will have noticed that I didn't reach 100%. So <laughs> there are more stats to come. So yeah, it, and it's the stats outside the digital music services that we haven't run through yet. Radio globally accounts for 16% of consumption and recordings that a person has bought and owns, so that's you know CDs, vinyl and downloads, accounts for 9%, which is either going to surprise or not surprise you, <laughs> depending on your view of purchased music. And then there's 7% left, which comes from things like live music, music on TV and music shared between friends and family. And that hopefully brings us up to 100%. We should add the radio stat. I mean, still decent, 16% of music consumption. Uh, that does include digital radio and online radio. So although we're saying it's not digital consumption, some of it technically is. But you know what we mean. It's kind of linear <laughs> radio style stuff. You mentioned beyond the stats taking us up to 100%, there were some other interesting things that came out from the survey. You've already included the one relating to just how important music is when watching videos on TikTok type apps. There was also, what is it, 29% of respondents had watched a live streamed show in the last year, obviously it being the year when live stream shows finally came of age. And of the people who had watched a live stream show in the last year, 65% said that they thought they would continue to do that even once proper shows are properly back obviously in some countries they already are um, but you know once the covid pandemic is finally done and dusted and talking of sort of virtual online concerts beyond all of the live streams that have been happening over the last year once covid stopped real gigs from happening of course there's also been quite a few headlines about the gigs that have been happening within gaming platforms like fortnite and so they also asked the gamers amongst the respondents whether or not they liked the fact that these virtual gigs were invading their gaming platforms and 52 percent said yes they were quite happy they were interested in watching such shows within such environments so uh yeah some other interesting stats in the report now, as well as talking up all these stats about where people are consuming all of their music in all these different places that are all great, this report also always has a little section on piracy and how it's ruining everything because it's not just on all these licensed platforms, some of which don't pay enough or do pay enough or are just fine or should pay more or anyway. Um, some people are getting their music from completely unlicensed platforms that don't pay anything at all. So 30% of people are accessing music in a way that infringes copyright. 27% are stream ripping. So, you know, taking, say, a YouTube stream and using a website to, to strip the music out of it as an MP3 and downloading it. And 14% are getting music from unlicensed social media platforms, all of which means that the music industry still wants stronger anti-piracy tools to stop stream ripping sites from allowing people to strip out MP3s from YouTube videos, etc. And also some safe harbour reform to force all the social media services to get themselves licensed. 
Yeah, because even this stats pack from the RFPI ultimately is a lobbying tool to try and get uh, governments and politicians around the world to do more to help the music industry. And RFPI boss Francis Moore, as well as bigging up all of these stats and how exciting it is that people are now consuming music in so many different places and how that's all the result of record labels and record companies being imaginative and innovative in the way that they license and distribute their music. She then said... The freedom of record labels to license music to these new and immersive experiences is crucial to the future growth of the entire music ecosystem. We are campaigning worldwide to ensure governments maintain or implement a fair environment in which such commercial deals can be made. And I suppose, interestingly, you could take that in a number of different ways. It's possibly meant in all of them. The freedom of record labels to license music to these new and immersive experiences is crucial to the future growth of the music ecosystem. You could take that to mean we need to get rid of Safe Harbour because that skews the market and we're not able to negotiate proper fair terms with Safe Harbour. It could be that with piracy continuing, with stream ripping, that impacts on our ability to properly license. Although the freedom of record labels to license music could also be a subtle dig at the proposals, which of course have been a big talking point, particularly in the UK over the last year, to apply so-called performer equitable remuneration to streams, which is where at least some of the streaming revenue that comes into the music industry goes directly to artists at industry standard rates through the collective licensing system. And quite how ER would work is very much still up for debate. Some would argue it probably wouldn't really work (laughs) in any effective way. But sometimes ER goes hand in hand with compulsory licenses. I would argue not under UK copyright law, actually. But in some countries, it is true that where you have that ER system that we've talked about a lot on the podcast, it often is accompanied by a compulsory license, which is where the music industry has to license digital platforms at a statutory rate, like in the US for songs, as we discussed at the very start of this week's edition of Setlist. So maybe as well as wanting safe harbour reform and a bigger crackdown on piracy and stream ripping, Francis Moore wanting the freedom of record labels to license music is maybe saying don't get any ER and even worse compulsory licenses on the agenda when it comes to uh, the dealings of the record industry with all of these various different streaming services and digital experiences that are becoming all the more important. I don't know. Maybe that's more my inference than Francis Moore's implication. Well, we'll see and we'll see what effect on lawmakers both of these reports that we've discussed this week have in the future. But for now, that's all we've got time for on this edition of Setlist. If you want to read more about anything we've discussed here, particularly those two big stories up in the intro, you can find links to them in the show notes, which you'll find in your podcast player now or at setlistpodcast.com. Do remember to subscribe to the show and rate and review it wherever you can. And if you want to contact us about anything we've talked about or anything else, email us setlist at unlimitedmedia.co.uk. Setlist is the music business podcast from CMU. It's presented by Andy Moulton, Chris Cook. And for more on CMU, go to completemusicupdate.com. Music Update.